0: Hey, um, it is really good to be here today. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And um, I am just really excited about this morning. Like sometimes, like, like like, I love speaking and sharing with the church, but then sometimes it's just nice to uh, sit back and receive some things other people have because God's moving a lot of people's lives. And every now and then, I don't, I'm don't. i sure everyone's experienced this at some different time or another, where you're just going about your life, and then all of a sudden, something that happens. At that moment, you have no idea the lasting effect it's going to make on you for the rest of your life. And this happened to me several, several years ago, walked into Crossroads Church. You've heard my story of um, overcoming sexual addiction and struggle and the brokenness in my marriage and family as a result of some things that happened to me and choices that I made. I walk in this group at Crossroads and this guy named Chuck Moore's there. And Chuck just says some things and um, get to meet him and get to know him a little bit. And then um, the rest of my life is transformed. I honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be married still. I wouldn't be the pastor at this church. And my life would be radically different if I hadn't met him that day. And so Chuck Moore is gonna speak today. Chuck is a great friend, mentor, brother, leader, shepherd. Chuck um, just has blessed me and so many other guys when, Everyone else just thought it was over for us. Um, God gave Chuck something that has restored a lot of lives and families, and so in a lot of churches. So I just want to just give an honor to my brother Chuck Moore. Yeah. I'm going to pray for Chuck, and then I'm going to turn it over to him. Father God. I just thank you for this awesome friend and man. Thank you for this mentor. Thank you for your spirit that's powerfully in him and on him. I pray that you'd speak to him and through him today, Lord, and that you would just bless us. Thank you for Chuck. Thank you for, um, uh, thank you for MHS. Lord, I thank you that none of us, none of us is beyond saving. None of us are. If we'll just open our hearts up and just, just be available and respond to the things you're doing, to the people you're putting in our paths, to the opportunities, Lord, that are in front of us to grow, change, and heal. Would you just uh, just communicate that loudly through my brother today? In your mighty and beautiful name, I pray, Father, amen. Amen,
1: amen, amen. Thank you, Ryan. You did it, Ryan, you did it. <laughs> Beware hugs. All right, we'll get this thing to work maybe, maybe. All right, well, I'll talk while I do this. The most important thing you want to know about me is that I've been married by the grace of God for almost 46 years. We've got four kids that happen to be married. We have five grandkids, and I love them. I love them very much. All right, so welcome to Healthy Sexuality Series. I'm the week two speaker, so next slide, if you could. Spoiler. Spoiler. In the Healthy Sexuality series, the week two speaker is the one who talks about the problem. He's the one who talks about the pain. And I'm that speaker. So I'm the unhealthy sexuality, to be clear, to be clear. In October, Ryan quoted when he was talking about his own past. He quoted C.S. Lewis and said, pain is God's megaphone. I'd absolutely agree, God speaks to us deeply in our suffering. However, in my earlier life, when I was in pain, I felt abandoned. When I was in pain, I felt completely left out and devoid of God. I would also like to submit that pleasure is also God's megaphone. It's part of the healthy sexuality. Pleasure is also God's megaphone. But in my earlier life, I celebrated without God. When it was a time to celebrate, it was a time for me to... um, Engage in any, whether I got promoted, whatever. It was a time where I grabbed the reins and said, I deserved it. This is mine. And so it's, upon reflection, probably not amazing since I relegated God out of pain and pleasure into some middle, bland place. That even though I could go to a worship service and praise God, out in life, my passion for God was muted. It was neither in my pain nor my pleasure. All right, let's get to know each other a little bit. Maybe that's a good next step since I believe we're all attempting to seek and follow Christ. How about a conversion story? Would you like my conversion story? And I do hope so because that's the plan. Okay, we'll take it. The verse that I'm going to use throughout this little message comes from Ephesians 5. 14 words from Ephesians 5.14. The next slide, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's an interesting set of verses. Back when I was attempting to memorize Ephesians 5, this verse and a few others around it about finding God's will was right before those momentous, amazing verses Paul writes about marriage. You know, those verses about husbands, love your wives. Um, as Christ did and die for them, and um, the mystery of the oneness of marriage. But in front of that is this little 14 words. And I remember when I first encountered them, I kind of cocked my head and went, I'm not quite sure why this is here. But I have to memorize scripture as it is. Little did I know how often I would come back to this scripture again and again in my life. My background... All right, I grew up in Boston, and I grew up Catholic in Boston. I'm 70 years old. When I went to service, which is, by the way, a mass, it was in Latin. Any Catholic, any people grow up Catholic here, anybody old enough that there was a, a, a Latin mass? Anybody old enough less? All right, but I may have some explaining still to do. Okay, here's the deal. we went to service back then, the role that you had was do not move. Do not say a word. There was no response of singing, there was no response of speaking. You stayed silent. The entire Mass was in Latin. You went up forward and back like we did to have communion in a more structured way. Uh, The Catholic Church has changed, but that was my experience. My mother was first born in America of a Greek immigrant family. Her parents never spoke English, also never learned how to read or write. They grew up in an abandoned building next to the railroad tracks. So twice a year, we would go to the Greek Orthodox Church, and that service would be entirely in Greek. I was not in my mid-teens before I realized God spoke English. Seriously. I had no idea. None. A quick story that probably in- summarizes how I felt about God. A nun once told me when I was about 10 years old, never talk to a Protestant. Seriously. And I lived in a part of Boston where that was possible. Never talk to a Protestant. But I went to school and I met a Protestant. I talked to them and I got invited to their house for dinner on a Friday night. And at that kitchen table, I consumed and swallowed a hot dog. You don't understand the impact. I'm old enough that back then, and those who raised their hands will know this, you, as a Catholic, fasted for meat all year long on Friday night, none of this Lent-only stuff. Every Friday night, you fasted to show your devotion to the church and to God. Once I swallowed that hot dog, you know what happened. The nun's voice resonated in my spirit. <laughs> And I realized, to my horror, I had not only talked to a Protestant, I had been invited to their home, I would eaten meat, and I would broken my relationship with God. I got up from the table, went to the bathroom, threw the hot dog up. This is a true story. Threw the hot dog up, presented myself as sick to the parents who drove me home, and for years afterwards, I was grieved and terrified, for I had broken the fast. I had broken my relationship with God. That kind of summarizes how I felt about God growing up. There's one more story that we'd like to talk about, though, The Catholics had this interesting deal that I kind of like, confession. where you went and confessed immediately to a priest, but went and confessed your sins. So my father would drive his three boys, three boys in three years. We call them Irish triplets in Boston. Three boys in three years. He'd drive his three boys every Saturday morning to confession. He stayed in the car, smoked a cigar, and read the newspaper. We went in and did confession. (laughs) Now, being three boys in three years, we turned this into an Olympic event. Hopefully, you'll find this instructive. The idea was make it a race. But I don't know who it was. I had my older brother. We made it a little more sophisticated. We put a twist in it. So when you walked into the church, there were usually two or three confessionals, two lines each. You had to get in the lines you thought would be the quickest. You had to get before the priest. But here's the twist: we had to get. The largest number of prayers assigned to us as penance possible, so we would make stuff up. Our job was to make up sins, to get the biggest number of prayers possible. Then you had to get to the altar, no running in church, get to the altar, kneel down. I could say, I think, 12 Our Fathers and eight Hail Marys in one minute, and then walk back, can't run, back to the parking lot, get in the car before your brothers. And then, of course, we would laugh and talk about the stuff we'd made up, and we would compare how many prayers. In the midst of all the fun, and of course, the honest confession to God of our sins, in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that, what I really wanted to be is my father. I said, man, I can't wait to be an adult. Because you know what? You never have to confess anything. I never saw my father go to confession. He just sat in the car, smoked a cigar, read the newspaper. I said, my God, to be an adult, what a cool thing. You never have to go to confession. So those are my stories of my background as a child, growing up with God. My parents, unfortunately, never had a Bible that I saw. We never prayed at home, so these were my experiences. And by the time I got to college, of course, I had left God behind. He was distant and unimportant. I actually mocked a set of Christians who lived upstairs in the dorm room, until I met a girl. Until I met this girl who loved God. Now, I have three daughters, So all of you, and maybe I'm talking to people here. I think this is kind of her dating the bad boy experience thing. Has that ever happened to you? It's kind of scary. But for some reason, God had put a mission on her heart to change this bad boy. So three years after we were dating, I asked her father for her hand in marriage. And this man, who was business manager of 10th Presbyterian Church in downtown Philadelphia and on the missions board, looked me square in the eye, as any good German dad would do, and said, No. (laughs) So we negotiated the next step. The next step was I would do a Bible study with Dad, and we did for three and a half months. Face to face every two weeks. And it was hard. There was homework, there were long written letters. This is back before email and computers, yes. Long written letters, all sorts of scripture to read. I didn't even know what scripture was. All sorts of stuff and it ended in a statement of confession. And I remember right now giving that statement of confession as I was giving it inside, I was saying, close the sale, close the sale, close the sale. When I finished, I was quiet. I said, here's the deal. Don't make a sound, make them talk first. It was a pretty empty confession, I would have to admit, but I knew the words. So Dad leaned in after a pause and said, Okay, you can marry my daughter. But when you have problems with your marriage, which you will, don't go to me, don't go to an old girlfriend. Go to God, because he created and sustained marriage. And I remember inside going, I got the girl. I tried to be very somber and say, thank you, sir. Raced over to my wife-to-be and said, we're going to get married. At that point in time, as the marriage date approached, she and I did one of the most important things I think I've ever done in my life. Because Dad was a business manager, had the keys to the church, we would go to the church when it was empty. We would hold hands at the altar look at each other, and memorize our vows. We would just say them over and over again and listen to them echo in this magnificent building. This church was built in 1857 by the same architect that built Philadelphia City Hall. I can still remember it to this very night. I can remember now hearing those vows echo. As the marriage date approached, the night before the wedding, I had my bachelor's party. Decidedly bad idea but I did. And what I abruptly came to realize is that nobody supported this marriage. My friends did not. My groomsmen did not. My best man spent the entire night telling me over and over again, get in my car and I will just drive away. Get in my car and I will just drive away. My groomsmen, who are also my college roommates, great guys, they were living in Manhattan, working for banks and uh, advertising agencies, and their stated objective in marriage was to double or triple their assets. And what was I doing marrying this girl whose dad was a business of a church? What is up? And I was the first, of course, of our group to get married. They were decidedly against the marriage. I got married the next day. And driving away from the reception, I felt a wall of rejection. I felt their anger, and I I felt their um, looking down on me. They're pushing me away. And I realized they were right. I was wrong. The marriage was a mistake. And I gave my wife four months of difficulty. I mean, I gave her, uh, I, I guess I felt that she needed a manager more than a lover. So I was critical. I was distant. I was working all the time. Um, I was volatile. Four months into the marriage, I decided I wanted a divorce. I mean, enough's enough. It had been four months of hell, not her fault at all. But it had been four months of hell for me, and so I wanted a divorce. So I walked in my home office, I grabbed a phone, and those were the days where the phone had substance, had lines and string and heft. And I started to dial an old girlfriend who I knew had a great lawyer who could help me out. And, of course, as soon as I did that, for the first time since it was spoken, I heard Dad's voice. The thing that he said that was crazy. When you have problems with your marriage, what you will. Don't go to me. Don't go to an old girlfriend. I think it was the only prophetic words Dad ever spoke, but he spoke them to me. Well, I threw the phone on the floor. I got down on my knees in that green shag rug. Yes, a green shag rug. And I cried out without even knowing what I was doing. God, 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 what a mess you've gotten me into. (laughs) And as I yelled that, um, I had an experience that is beyond words. But God broke into my life. I mean, it's three screens, It's like three screens opened in my mind. It's like being in a sports bar, but they weren't showing a good game. What I was seeing was all the ways that I'd criticized my wife, I'd belittled her, I'd distanced myself from her, and I was in horror, even though obviously I didn't feel that when I had just done it the four months before. And I felt this guilt. But what I felt above and beyond all of that was a belonging uh, a flow of connection that is indescribable. And I heard the words, We will fix this. Well, I had no idea what was going on. I mean, my parents worshiped education and I had nailed my education. So as part of me that was going, Is this a super ego? Is this the id? What is going on? What is happening? Nothing made sense to me. So as I got up from that shag rug, my life began to change. We actually went to church, got into a small group, we tithed. I mean, I was on fire because it was clear this was God, nothing to do with me. He had a plan and a purpose for me, which was beyond my understanding. And somehow I knew, somehow this was the God of all those scriptures that Dad had given me to read. And so um, we actually got moved to Milwaukee. We started to help, be part of a church plant. Yes, taking up the chairs, putting them down. We ended up leading the high school group. That was a crazy idea. We ended up actually teaching the marriage group because we'd been married for three years. <laughs> start-up churches are a beautiful thing. I know you guys built this 23 years ago. Yes, so, at any anyway. rate. But I can remember pouring over the scriptures, including the scriptures in Ephesians 5. And saying, what is the heart of God in this? What is the heart of God? We can't teach anything unless we believe it. What does this mean? What's going on here? That was our journey. Fast forward five years. I've been promoted. I'm actually one of the youngest people in the world in my position. By the grace of God, I'm rated number one. I'm managing the seven markets in the Northeast. And I'll give you a memory. It's one o'clock in the morning, and I'm walking in Boston along Stewart Street. There's not a lot of people on the street. I hear the crunch of car tires. A window rolls down, and I hear a man's voice saying, I know where you're going. You don't belong here. Go back to your hotel, or go back to wherever you're living. I ignored him and kept walking. The car kept rolling right next to me, And I saw a gleam, and the man leans out of the window, and I see a police badge. And he says, I know where you're going. We're going to raid that place. And if you're there, you are going to jail. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So if you think I needed to wake up in that situation, we'll get you involved in here. All right, just say, wake up. Say, wake up. Come on, one more time, wake up. Just wanna make sure you're with me. Wake up, Chuck. So how did I feel in that moment? How did I feel in the moment as the policeman flashes his badge? I'll tell you how I felt. I'm sure you got it right. I was angry. I was angry. I had been in Boston for three nights already. I had prayed in my hotel room, I had worked hard, I talked to my wife, and this was my reward. This is my reward. And I knew it would be my reward because I'd been there before. But I turned around, went back to my hotel room, and worked on my anger there. Wake up, O oh sleeper. But certainly I learned from this. Three years later, I was elected elder of a large church in Cincinnati. Elder elect. I was elected elder because I was involved in our leading five different ministries that were bearing fruit, that were growing. I was growing and learning. Um, and then four days after I was elected elder, I was just down the street here at the Cincinnati airport. My flight gets canceled. I have unaccountable time. I go to Covington, go to a striptease joint, interact with the dancers, convince one of them that I can follow her afterwards, gets out of work to her apartment, and I start following her later that night to her apartment and I'm praying I'm praying Lord what is going on here and as I pray I hear all will be revealed and I respond well I know all gets revealed in heaven Lord I heard again all will be revealed wake up O sleeper rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So I went home, woke up the next morning, went downstairs, and confessed to my wife. I actually didn't want to confess. I just confessed. There wasn't enough time to confess everything. I don't think I could have confessed everything because a lot of my behaviors I had walled off for myself. Aren't we interesting? Yeah. And then, of course, I went to work and left my wife with four kids underneath the age of seven to pack the lunches of the older two and get them to school. She was still breastfeeding our youngest and to try to figure out what was true. In the midst of this crazy, insane betrayal, what was left? Was there anything that could be? It was actually my wife who arranged an immediate meeting with a pastor who was my mentor But back then, this is 32 years ago, they had no words. They had no experience for what I was doing. So even my mentor, God bless him, met with me, and I met with an elder five times, and I was declared fine, healed, ready to go. I confessed, prayed, healed, ready to go. Great idea. But it was hard. God bless the church. They didn't throw us out. When I went to meet with the head pastor and confessed and obviously withdrew my name for being an elder withdrew from all my leadership positions and said I was going to take an undisclosed amount of time to figure out what to do next he got up from his chair and left the office 20 minutes later I realized he wasn't coming back You know the betrayal it's was important it was important for me to realize the betrayal went even beyond the devastation of my wife and kids. You know, it went to the church. But there was a part of me, maybe it was a selfish part of me, that would have wanted the pastor to come back. He didn't. As the weeks and months went by, yes, I left after 20 minutes, but as the weeks and the months went by, we never did reconnect. And I felt that deep shame of how I had broken my relationship with all. And as we continued, we did continue to go to the church. We got some help from their counseling. But for my wife, she heard things in the women's room like, you know, if you had tried harder, if you had done something different, it would have been different. Because of course, I was the one everybody knew. I was the one in front. So those are the words that were spoken to my wife. And as she decided bravely to say, I don't know if this will work, but I'm gonna act as if this is an evil and you and I are going to come against this evil together. And she bravely made that choice, and we worked our way through. She, of course, heard from people. If you had any self-respect, you would have left him. This is our story. I'm not trying to say it needs to be anybody else's story. Or but it is ours. For eight years, we did the best we could. But with no language, with no help, on an ongoing basis, it was a volatile time. As I relapsed, I tried and relapsed until I found a group, until I found people who could help me. Well, since we're getting to know each other, let's ask another question. This is the Healthy Sexuality Series, right? So there's probably a question that Ryan will have us all like share as we go through this series and that would be when were you first sexually active? I'm sure you guys just trade that over beers at celebrating Bengals games. So when were you first sexually active Chuck? Ready for this? Age three. Because of my dad. One of the things I learned in this group that I joined was to Ask God to reveal memories. And that's the journal on it, and to go back into the memory. So I did that one day, and a memory came up. It was a memory that, a story that I had told. Um, I was in first grade, and my father was driving me to school. And at the end of the drive, I got out. My father brought me out, and I gave me to the teacher, and I was crying. And when the teacher asked me why I was crying, I said... I just miss my dad. I mean, my dad and I don't spend any time together, and he drove me to school. I was so excited that he drove me to school. My, my dad is an amazing guy, but he, um, I just knew he hated kids, and he did. He was very critical, very distant, never involved. But here he was, driving me to school. But as I journaled in this memory, I realized those tears are not the tears of a disappointed son. Those were the tears of anger, rage even, and fear. Then the memory came back, that halfway to school, Dad pulled the car off the road and started to grope me aggressively. And then when I kicked and bit and fought, by the way, those were the days where little kids could still be in the front seat and there were no seatbelts. Ta-da! So as I kicked and fought him, he threw me against the passenger door, drove to school, got out, pulled me out of the car, gave me the teacher, shrugged his shoulders, and said, I don't know what's wrong with him, and then drove off. And I was crying inconsolably. As I journaled about that memory, and as I prayed, I realized this was not the first time. This had happened before. And then other memories came, memories that were far more complete, memories that were far more difficult, mostly involving my father and in his bathroom, um, from years before and years afterwards. So let's talk about wounds. What was I feeling? I was feeling lost, unloved, unworthy of love. Children blame themselves. I kept asking myself, what would I need to do to get my father's attention in a way that would be loving and caring? What's wrong with me that it never, ever works, that I'm always cast out? The Bible talks about wounds in a number of ways. I know there are a lot of wonderful verses about press on, do not look back. You are a new creation. Be that new creation. Focus on the things that are good, right, and trustworthy. Trustworthy but not all wounds are the same. For me, this wound, repetition of this wound and where it was worn on me caused me me to behave differently for my entire life. I'll give you one example. As I was doing one of these journaling exercises, all of a sudden, God caused me to think about a worship service much like this one, where I was worshiping felt the love of God, and as I exited the sanctuary and walked out to the parking lot, I felt abandoned, alone, and frightened. I'm like, what is that? Then I realized, wait a minute, that is what I feel. That's what I feel at the end of, but I hid that even from myself because I didn't know what to do with it. What was that about? And as I journaled some more, I felt the physical push. Because when my father stopped interacting with me sexually, he would push me away in anger. And I was experiencing that very same thing as I went to worship my father in heaven. Bizarrely, as I left the sanctuary, I felt physically pushed away. Why do I tell you this? Because no prayer, no scripture alone, as good as they are, We're going to help me to deal with this cycle of pray, praise, and feel pushed away into isolation and hopelessness and helplessness without dealing with the wound directly. And I realized as I did this journaling that I'd made sex an idol. And like all idols, sex works for a while, idols work for a while but they just demand more and more and more from your life. In my case, I was first introduced to pornography at about eight years old, maybe seven, because I had a friend whose father's garage was wallpapered in pornography. It was actually a barn, a 10-foot ceiling. I mean, completely wallpapered in pornography, and apparently it was perfectly fine in their context. I was overwhelmed by the variety and the boldness of what I saw. And it continued, and it was progressive for me, but it was a way that I dealt with my life because what I discovered about sexual behavior, compulsive sexual behavior, it's not about the sex. I was medicating my pain. It was the way I had found to deal with my loneliness to deal with my abandonment, to deal with the fact that I couldn't figure out how to get my father to love me or hug me. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I'd like to look at Scripture to see the biblical story of how this can practically work, how practically Christ can shine in us and people can actually come from the dead. So I'm going to use a um, biblical hero, I could use Jerubabel, Hezekiah, Mephibosheth, but I don't think I can pronounce those words in front of you, so we're going to use David. I love good old David. You know the word. You knew I was going to use David. David who was actually resurrected from the dead seemingly a couple of times, but I'd like to just address him in 2 Samuel, and I'll just read from 2 Samuel. David became famous, reigning over all Israel, doing what was right and just for all his people. And David prayed, O Lord my God, you are the almighty God of Israel. Your name will be great forever. And David goes out and slaughters 40,000 Aramean foot soldiers, the enemy, with his mighty men. This is the David who, when Samuel went to anoint the new king, I know you know this story. We'll just do it quickly. When, When Samuel goes to anoint, right, the new and future king, and Jesse arrays his kids, all seven of his eight sons Samuel goes through every single one and goes, whoa, 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 you're missing somebody here. And there's a pause. And they go, well, we've got the youngest. He's like out in the fields, a shepherd. What I love is what Samuel does next. You know, it's hard to sometimes know the tone of the Bible. Samuel threatens Jesse. He says, We will not sit down until you get your son. A direct threat. But Samuel is obviously tuned into Jesse's attitude towards David. Him, him. Yes, him. So Samuel anoints him. And what happens to David, the forgotten son, the one left out, far off? Of course, he slays Goliath. He ends up in Saul's court, playing the liar, being one of Saul's confidants, being his armor-bearer. But he gets chased out by Saul's anger when he finds out he's the future anointed king. Ends up fleeing Saul's army, living in caves, hiding, actually pretending to be insane in a foreign land in order to escape Saul's army. But he becomes king anyhow. A resurrected life after a resurrected life. And here he is in all his glory. He slays 40,000 Arameans. How does he celebrate with all that he has? Next slide, if you could. You know this, 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the entire Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. In the spring, it was common for kings to go to war. Why? They needed to project their power. They needed to police the perimeter. There were people who would come in at the end of winter and early spring to try to encroach in the lands. So he would police the perimeter, project his power, and in particular, God called him to besiege the city of Rabbah. But David did not go. The next slide, if we could. So what does David do? He stays behind, and one evening David got up from his bed, walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he sees a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, "She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite." Then David sent the messengers to get her. She claimed to him, and she slept, and he slept with her. By the way, this is unhealthy sexuality, to be clear. This is sexually compulsive behavior. We don't know what the motivation of David to stay behind. We don't know. But we do know that he isolated himself. And as a result of his isolation, he made this crazy choice. Given all that he had, why would he take Bathsheba? What is going on here? But this unleashes a series of crazy, compulsive, destructive behaviors. I know you know the story, but there may be some details that may surprise you. Yes, Bathsheba gets pregnant. Yes, David tries to cover it up by inviting the husband, Uriah, back. And in case we don't get it, Samuel and God clearly show us what the right behavior is because Uriah refuses to sleep in his bed, refuses to sleep with his wife. Why? Because... His friends, his comrades, are in a tent, in a war zone, and he doesn't want to dishonor them. Just in case we miss David's behavior here. This is not about Bathsheba. This is about David. So he covers it up, but it doesn't work. So then he conspires to kill Uriah the husband. But in doing so he compromises one of his closest friends and his top commander, Joab. He asks Joab to do something that makes Joab look incompetent and foolish as a general. And not only does he successfully kill Uriah, he kills other Israelite soldiers. And in doing so, obviously Joab knows what's going on, I do believe his mighty men probably are like not only wears David, but when they see Joab do this crazy maneuver that causes people to die, they're wondering what is going on. So Bathsheba gets taken into David's palace because, of course, she lost her husband. And then David acts like nothing's happening, like everything's fine for months. But people know, but no one challenges him. Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead. How does David get saved? Does God send a scripture? Does God send a dream? In this case, God sent a person. God sent Nathan. Nathan the prophet who did a very clever job of having David admit that he was the powerful one who took from the lesser. David repents. David confesses. David fasts for seven days when the baby is born and becomes sick. Next slide, if you could. And it's in this psalm that David speaks. He speaks about how he himself, he could feel God ripped from him and his own strength ripped from him. And he confessed, and God began to forgive him. But I believe that David wasn't fully forgiven, and David was not restored until he went out back to his army and back to the purposes that God put in his life. But if you read The scripture, how does David get back to the army? Joab summons him. Joab, the man that he betrayed, the man that he made look like a fool, the commander of his armies, summons him and says, come. Rabbah is us, ours for the taking, but I want you to be here when we take it. God sent a second person to allow David to be rehabilitated when it's David gets into community that finally he feels the full forgiveness of God because he is fulfilling the purpose that God had him a year before and they conquered Rabbah. What I'd like to propose to you is there's a pattern here. God sends a person and the person leads to a community. A skilled community in order to fulfill (laughs) rising from the dead and Christ shining on David. We see this very same thing in the New Testament with Paul. I know we like all the flash and, and bang, if you will. So the picture I always have with Paul is right when he's Saul, and he's riding to Damascus to kill Christians, and bang, the light goes off, Saul falls down, and he's blinded. That's the amazing part we all know. But as you know, the rest of the story is Jesus doesn't just say, I'm the one that you're trying to persecute. He says, you've got to go to a person." There's a person you need to see, Ananias. It's Ananias who allows Paul and helps Paul see again, changes Saul's name to Paul, and then tells him what to do. And Paul tries to preach, but he's ineffective. It's not working for him. So he ends living three years, some say in a cave, himself, alone, preaching where he can, but clearly the results are not the results that we see Paul having later in his life. What happens? God sends Barnabas. And Barnabas is Paul's mentor. And it's Barnabas that invults, invites Paul to go to Antioch, live amongst a community of Christ followers to learn how to live the heart of Christ so he can effectively preach the heart of Christ. Paul needed a person in Ananias, Paul needed Barnabas, and Paul needed a skilled community in order to figure out how to be the Paul that we know. I finally found my flock 27 years ago. But I'd also like to say that Jesus summarized this whole process in one beautiful parable and one paragraph. Next slide, if you could. In Luke 15, 1 through 7, and Matthew 18, 10 through 14, there's the parable of Jesus leaving the 99 and finding the one lost sheep. I mean, that is probably one of the most famous parables ever. It's concise. I don't know if this is the picture. This hangs or something like this in so many Sunday school rooms. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you saw Jesus. Based on this parable, Jesus hugging the lamb. Yes, Jesus leaves the 99. He goes and finds the lamb, extricates it from whatever it was tangled in. But here's the question. What does Jesus do with the lamb next? What does Jesus do with the lamb? And one of the renditions, Jesus throws a party. Maybe Jesus brings the lamb to the party and celebrates the one that was lost is found, yes. But then, where does the lamb go? What does Jesus do with the lamb? He puts it back in the flock. He puts it back in the flock. And I think knowing the heart of Jesus, he just doesn't like drop the lamb anywhere in the 99. Where does he put it? He puts it next to the last lamb he found. So these two lambs can have this little conversation where one says, welcome back. I know what it's like to be apart from the shepherd. I know what it's like to be tangled and afraid and terrified. Welcome back. Welcome back. Now, let me help you figure out how to grow in the flock. Here's the deal. Jesus wants us all flocked up. He wants us all flocked up. That's his strategy. A skilled community, a flock, who knows how to love and receive, and is not surprised when people get lost, but they're just very good at welcoming us back. I found my flock. I found, finally, my group, and I owe them my life. My sponsor was the first person, the first man that I ever trusted, ever. He taught me to slow down. He taught me how to reflect on my life, not on business plans, but on my life. He taught me to journal and to pray about journaling. He taught me not to run from my wounds, but to invite God into my wounds. And I needed the group. I needed to be able to do this together, to hear other people's stories so I could understand mine. I invited God. I learned to invite God into my pain and to realize I wasn't alone in my pain, that God was with me. He was suffering with me. He wanted to be with me. And I let God heal me. Instead of medicating, I learned how to feel. Yes, I felt grief over the consequences of my actions, but I also learned how to invite God into my wounds and that God was more powerful than my wounds. But I had to feel it. I had to experience it with others. And I learned to forgive. I forgave my dad. I hope he's in heaven and I would like to give him a hug before he has a chance to hug me. I would like the first hug the two of us ever exchanged to be initiated by me. He gave me a better childhood than he himself experienced. He himself was sexually abused. He had no father, no mother. He was brought up by people who didn't want him. He gave me a better childhood than he had. I forgave my mother. I've left my mother out of this for simplicity purposes. My mother, unfortunately, was a paranoid schizophrenic. And in the area of healthy sexuality, she repeatedly told me that my father never satisfied her and she would have these conversations before I was 10 years old. I grew up in kind of a confused environment when it came to healthy sexuality. I forgave my anger towards God, and I even forgave me. Forgiveness. I found the power of forgiveness. And then I found something that surprised me. I found God. Now remember, I'd been elected an elder of a church, but I found God like I'd never experienced God. I'll give you one memory. I ended up going to a Trappist Monastery in Gethsemane, right here in Kentucky, well, three hours away. But anyway, I went for four and a half days of silence. I'll give you one example. One morning, I was going up a hill to the statue of St. Peter. I was gonna sit at the base of the statue of St. Peter, and I was determined to be silent and to hear God. I was striving and ready to go. And I sat at the base of that statue and I closed my eyes so I could worship God and listen for, for God. But as I was closing my eyes, I was suddenly distracted by all this color. The sun was just right. All these wildflowers, birds, insects, butterflies, all this activity. And I was just captured by it. Now, I love nature, but I mean, I started Whitewater canoeing, and mountain climbing. So, you know, Talking a lot about wildflowers and birds and insects was not my gig. But this was amazingly beautiful. And for some reason, it caught me completely off guard and really spoke deeply to me. I remember saying, close your eyes. You're here to worship God. You're here to be quiet before God. But I peeked a little bit. And because I've been silent and I've been quiet and not moving, all the more activity. The sun was just right. I mean, it was amazing the colors I was seeing that just caught me completely off guard. Then I closed my eye again. No, no, no. Focus. You're distracted. A laugh grew in my body. A laugh from the top of my head to my feet, and I heard, "Relax. You're making this way too hard. Let me love you." Yeah. And so I opened my eyes, and I just. I don't know, with everything I've told you, talking about butterflies is a little uneasy for me. But at any rate, <laughs> I felt and I experienced something that cannot be explained, but I can say this. When I'm in nature now, it's different. There's a part of that laugh that still resonates in me every time I look at one wildflower, and my prayers are different. I've discovered a love of being in the presence of God I've discovered this ability to just love God loving me. This crazy mystery of just being silent in the rich silence of the presence of God and having these deep, filling conversations. And, of course, the joy of helping others. I have been in Men's Healthy Sexuality, and that was the group, for 26 years. And I've had the opportunity to serve hundreds of men. Now, most of them aren't... SUFFERING WITH MY BEHAVIORS. MOST OF US ARE WRESTLING WITH PORN. BUT ALL OF US ARE MEDICATING. ALL OF US ARE MEDICATING THE IMPACT OF PARENTS WHO... love. I KNOW MY PARENTS LOVE ME. THEY JUST WERE NOT SO GOOD AT SHOWING IT. SO MANY PARENTS... I WILL SAY THE TYPICAL PROFILE OF PEOPLE WHO ARE IN MEN'S HEALTHY SEXUALITY ARE CHRISTIAN HOMES. CHRISTIAN HOMES THAT FOR WHATEVER REASON THE PARENTS WERE UNABLE TO LOVE THEIR KIDS. MAYBE THEY WERE LEANING TOO MUCH ON RULES. WHATEVER. FOR THIS MAN For this childhood, they felt isolated, alone, and unloved, and lost, and hopeless. It was only through a skilled community that we could peel back these layers of isolation. My mission now is to live free, free others with God in skilled community. And I just wanna speak God's heart. If you are impacted, as a guy, if you're impacted by unwanted and unproductive sexual behaviors, I just appeal to you. Maybe you're like me. It's not your fault. You're medicating your childhood. You're medicating what you didn't have. But take action. Now's the time to make a choice. You cannot do this alone. If anybody could have, it would have been me. And it's progressive. So if you're trying to do this alone, which I did for years and years and years, stop. All you're going to do is convince yourself that God does not love you and that God is distant and you're a monster. You're not and God is here. But what you need is a skilled community. You are not alone. So, I love the fact that this flock has decided to start and support a men's healthy sexuality group. It is a skilled group. It starts, the next time it meets is Thursday on January 26th. Two of the leaders are here, Tony and Brad, and they're available to be talked to either here or in the atrium right after this session. There's another group called Transforming Betrayal. You heard it announced this morning, and two of the leaders are here. We've got Sarah and we've got Maria, and uh, their group is devoted to helping women who have suffered, like my wife did, the impact of betrayal. These groups last multiple weeks, and they work. They are a skilled community, and there are very few of them in Cincinnati. So thank you for this flock, for choosing to be the flock and to support these two groups. Now, if you're not impacted by unwanted compulsive behaviors, which is my trial and my wound, whatever your trial, I just encourage you to let it bring you closer to God. This is a healthy sexuality series, so a couple of quick points. Marriage. My wife and I, and her name is Marty, and Marty's here. Hello, my dear. Thank you, I love you. Marty and I have chosen our marriage to be a skilled community of two. Our goal is to heal each other. We have healed each other, we are healing each other, and we will heal each other. It has caused us to invest in a set of skills and to do a lot of intentional work. I'll give you one simple example. Based on what I experienced in the Trappist Monastery, Marty and I get away for a three-day weekend in Lake Cumberland. A friend just gave us their condo for the three days. On the first day, driving down, I said to Marty, let's spend the first day alone seeking God. I don't think Marty had ever done it, and I had never done it with Marty. So, it was kind of rainy. I said, Marty, you're the indoor person. Stay indoors, I'll go out in the woods. I went out the, off the beaten track, sat on the edge of Lake Cumberland, looking at the, uh, at the lake, hiding from the rain as much as I could. Five hours later, who shows up? My wife. She's like, I just felt God calling me out to the rain to walk. How she found me, I have no idea. We sat next to each other and hugged each other for about an hour, listening to the rain and watching it hit the lake. We didn't say a word. That was a powerful, powerful experience, which we would not have done had we not engaged in exploring and trying new skills to heal each other. As my wife has been saying for over 10 years, all of this has been worth it. She wouldn't change a thing. And God has not wasted anything. Despite all this craziness and devastation and insanity, she wouldn't change a thing, and neither would I. Because of the joy of where we are in our marriage and with God. Invite God into your pleasure. Know that God is within your pain, but invite God into your pleasure. I mean, this sounds so simple, but most guys that I know, most people that I know, even as Christians, they may say, Praise God, like Houday. But I'm talking about a deep down to your bones, into the midst of your spirit. Enjoy God as you enjoy your life. It'll change who God is. For I have found that as I approach God now, I experience a joy that I never, ever thought was possible. I thought joy was for other people, or I thought I had to bring the joy. If I could have the next slide. We'll go to the last two slides that will be done. Psalm 16 the very words of David, David whose life has been so crazy and devastated his own compulsive sexual behaviors and the devastation that followed and he says, you God, make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy. Not David's joy, God's joy. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the king who could easily find pleasures and did, but he submits, it's God's joy. It's God's eternal pleasures in his presence. And then Psalm 34, eight, our last slide, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see, this is, this is David who has tasted the best wine in the best land. He says, no, it is the Lord who is good. There's another translation that says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Oh, the joy of those who take refuge in him. And I like to say, blessed and oh, the joys of those who find their God and the God's joy overwhelms them. It's possible. I never thought it could ever be possible for me. Blessed is the one in all the joys. Wake up. May we wake up to the joy of the presence of God. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Chuck. That was... uh Enormous blessing. Um, I want to invite everyone today. Um, you know, if you got to go, you got to go. Maybe you really got to go. The bathroom's <laughs> over here. But, um, but I want to encourage you today to not leave without, without receiving prayer. Because I think there's... We had, a, we had a lot of people show up on Thursday for the guys' group and the women's group. But I'm guessing there's more than even that. The amount of people whose lives have been hurt by either their own poor choices or the poor choices other people and we we're a church that believes in prayer we believe we talk a lot about up and out and we believe like up is connection with Jesus and prayer is a way we can connect with Jesus but also in like God uses people to connect us to him so if you want prayer um, you can sit and pray by yourself but also we have uh, people of prayer prayer team people want to come on and kind of gather throughout the room that we stand there in pairs um The people holding the snakes. Just kidding. Um, But, and then out, like we want to connect with other people. So we're talking about this stuff. So maybe you're struggling or you know people are struggling. Share what's going on. Share what's going on. We're not trying to embarrass people. We want to help people. But we know that even guys like David, the man after God's own heart, was rescued through a sacred community. Through Joab saying, come on. Through through his brother, Nathan, through the prophet, the brother and Lord saying, come on, this is you. So we want to connect. So if you want prayer today, don't leave without prayer. And, um, and or if you got to go get your kids, cause we're going a little long, go get your kids and come back and get prayer. So Lord, we just bless people. I ask your face to shine upon our congregation today. Help us to walk in your grace and truth. And I know some of these topics are uncomfortable and I know they feel dirty, and to some of us, it's just uh, not really the thing we want to hear. But Lord, uh, we we want to hear you, and we know that this that you made us sexual creatures, and we know that um, this is this is something that a lot of us need help with, that it's broken a lot of us, Lord, and a lot of us have broken others. So I pray that you just minister to people today, Lord. We love you, and we bless you, and we thank you for your amazing and beautiful name. And through it we pray, Father, Amen. Well, have a good, have a great week. Go and sin less, and hoo day.